to the Talking CX podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about employee understanding. Last week, we discussed customer understanding and what that means and what the challenges are and how to approach it. And so for anyone who hasn't heard that yet, if you'd like to, that's our last podcast that we did. And this week is employee understanding. And with me, as always, I have Graham. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Hi, Robin. Doing great. It's rainy here in Florida, but otherwise great. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. I I would be happy to see the rain up here, you know, out in the Northwest. We could use more. So hopefully we'll get some soon, but enjoy it, I would say, as long as it isn't accompanied by a hurricane. Right. No, not yet. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) All right. So I guess we should not make the assumption that most people already know what we're talking about when we talk about employee understanding. What is your definition of employee understanding? What does that mean? Well, I think that employee understanding is pretty simple, which is understanding your employees the same way as you do customers. However, employee understanding is you know, in our annual survey is related to challenge number nine, which is addressing employee experience and the voice of the employee, which is a, which is a whole, you know, different level of, of understanding of what those terms are. Okay. And why is it important? I I think from what I've heard is that it didn't used to really be on the radar and it's becoming more and more on the radar. And yeah. so what is your perception of why it's become moved up into the top 10? Well, let's, let's talk about voice of employee and EX, right? Because employee experience about why they're important, because that's the real meat. So again, just difference between those two terms, voice of employee is understanding what your employees can contribute to your understanding of experiences, mostly customer experiences. And employee experience is thinking about your employees as high value assets, just the same way as you think about a customer and their journey. You know, a customer may go through awareness to purchase to long-term relationships. An employee may go through, you know, becoming aware of your company to applying, to interviewing for a job, to onboarding, to being there through a number of years, being promoted, being relocated, being moving to other jobs. So an employee has an experience with your company the same way as a customer as an experience with your company. And today, um, you know, employees are, especially the, you know, the high focus employees are treasured assets in organizations. And I think companies are beginning to realize more and more that their, their highest performing employees are as critical to the success of their business as their highest performing customers. So they're using CX techniques to apply to the employee in the same way as they would you know, treat a, a customer as a as a treasured asset of the business. So it's just uh, it's just becoming more and more important. Of course, in COVID, where we are today with the return to work um, and the fact that the employment uh, operating model essentially has been kind of blown up in many circumstances and is being rebuilt. Um, you know, figuring out what employees want and need and how to deliver the experiences they require is more important than ever. It, it is. It is. Uh, there's plenty of news stories about just how much more important that it is now uh, post-pandemic. And I'm sure there's a number of parallels uh, between customer understanding and employee understanding. 
Um, one of the ones that I can think of potentially is possibly the uh, same kinds of privacy issues that customers have. I think we referred to it as the creepy factor. I'm sure that that's true for employees as well, I would imagine. Um, certainly in the, in the companies that I talk to, even more so. Um, and that is there are, there are many companies who you know, are using sophisticated analytics to profile customers. And most of the people inside the business have kind of gotten their heads around that in order to treat them well. But when you, when you talk about psychological profiling and behavior profiling of your employees, um, you know, you can be treading on some pretty dangerous territory in most organizations. So yeah, those privacy issues are the same, but I would say they're more, they're almost more explosive in a lot of organizations than, than the customer privacy issues. So that's a really interesting topic to bring up because I've run across some additional information regarding voice analytics that I think is really interesting. And it kind of pertains to both what we were discussing for customer understanding and for this as well. Um, It's a book that I found and it's called uh, Profiling the Human Voice. And it's written by Arita Singh, and she is a research professor at Carnegie Mellon. And she published this really interesting book. And the first chapter is available um, when you look on Amazon. So I'm getting this information from from that kind of blurb where you can look at the first chapter which is about profiling. So let me just read you what the term profiling means in this book. It means from the voice refers to the deduction of personal characteristics and information about the circumstances and environment of a speaker from their voice. Mm -hmm. And this includes a whole lot of information. Um, And it goes on to break down characteristics into parameters. And there's about eight different parameters. Some of them I'm sure I think that you probably are already very familiar with. And other ones were a huge surprise to me. So I don't know if that will be a surprise to you. So you ready? Yeah, hit me. Okay. So our first category, our first profiling category is behavioral parameters. And this is the list of all the things that they believe that they can deduce from a person's voice, just from hearing them speak on a recording. Uh, Behavioral, um, dominance, leadership, and public and private behavior. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of details describing what public and private behavior is. I'm not sure what they mean by that, but um, yeah, so that's the first one. Um, Mm -hmm. Second one is demographics, which means, which includes your geographical origins in addition to um, race and education. Right. Well, we all all know that we all know that story. It's called Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle, My Fair Lady, right? Okay. I can tell by my accent that you're from three miles east of the Bow Bells in London or five <laughs> miles west of Marble Arch. I mean, yeah, that's 150 years old, so we definitely know that's true. 
Yeah, although it, you know, the way people move around, it might a might be a little more difficult. But that's oh, and then you should you one. should go you should go read the play or see the movie because one of the things is you're from the east part of London, but you spent three years in Mumbai in India and a little bit of time in South Africa and some time in Ireland, and now you're back here. So yeah, oh, that's that's pretty standard. Okay, all right. Well, next is environmental. Um, and that is the location of the speaker at the time of speaking, the objects surrounding the person in the room, and the devices and communication channels that they're using. Okay, so some of that's uh, some of that's believable. You know, train whistle in background means near train station. Um, yeah, I don't. I think, and I think some of it you could probably definitely pick up. I think that. It could be a little bit of a stretch, but I can understand why some of those things are true. Yep. Yeah. Okay. The next one, medical parameters. So the presence or absence of specific diseases, medications, and other substances. Um, and that includes drugs or food. I mean, now obviously, you know, you can usually tell if someone's high or intoxicated, but this includes drugs that you're actually taking. And your state of physical health and your state of mental health. Yeah, I mean, again, I can understand why there's some very specific examples of each of those things where you could detect. I, I find it difficult to believe that you could uniformly detect all examples of all of the parameters on that. But certainly, and, and especially, by the way, I don't know whether there's anything in the description of this book, whether we're talking about static profiling a one time or are we talking about multiple conversations over a period of time so we're actually we're actually defining trends rather than you know somebody rocks up and gives you 15 seconds of speech you can talk all about this stuff or is this you know if you get 100 samples of speech over a two-year period you could track a lot of different elements of a person based on the the changes so yeah so there's a video that she put out about this as well which i watched um, mm -hmm. It was a speech that she gave. Mm -hmm. And um, in there, it's pretty clear that she is talking about one time, one person. And, uh, you know, maybe a one to several minute mm -hmm. conversation or, mm -hmm. or one to several minute snippet of the person talking. So mm -hmm. not over a length of time. So the next parameter is uh, physical parameters. And that includes height, your weight, your body shape. <laughs> And your facial structure, which was, that was a surprise to me. Well, facial structure, facial structure is the most logical of all the things, right? Because a person's intonation and otherwise is directly impacted by their facial structure. I cannot imagine, and that's why she's a brilliant academic and I'm not. I cannot imagine how you could tell whether somebody is six foot two or six foot based on how they speak. But, you know, <laughs> go for it. I don't know, <laughs> but there's more. Physiological, um, your age, and get this, your hormone levels and your heart rate and your blood pressure. <laughs> so, <laughs> no medical checkup needed. Just, you know, talk to whatever kind of software these guys are inventing. <laughs> Next is psychological your personality and your emotions. I can see some of that, but I, and it doesn't really go into detail about how, how much detail that you can tell about someone's psychology. 
it just says personality and emotions. And then the last one is uh, sociological. Your social status, your income, your profession. Yeah, so, so those are the parameters. And then it goes into a lot more details. But I thought just that by itself was absolutely astonishing. And I think that it kind of buries the, the creepy line under the ground, honestly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, even if, I mean, I think, I think she's obviously pitching for funding personally. Um, but I mean, 50, 60% of that is, is not only believable, but, but done. I mean, I was involved 15 years ago in, in the early stages of behavioral analytics where we were doing speech analytics to define psychographic profiling. So, I mean, that's, that's been around for a long time. Um, and so, you know, many of the elements that she's talking about, I agree with, there's some things there that I, again, if we're looking for changes over time or we're looking for, you know, extreme data points, I get it. I mean, you can tell some about a person's socioeconomic background, but it's not defined, right? It's not, I mean, in general, people of X speak this way, but not all people of X or Y speak a particular way. So I, I, I get it. But, and, and I think that's your point about the creepy line, right? I mean, the, the fear, the fear of the creepy line, as in the book, pointing at the Googles and Facebooks of the world, people's big fear is that they're being profiled in a way that affects their life and that they have no control over. So just like some people get antsy about their credit score because they're nervous that their credit score, they can get assessed and turned down or approved for all kinds of things in life. And if that data is wrong, how do they have the right to basically get it corrected? And so the creepy line, if you've watched the movie, is the Netflix movie is largely about people that have no control over what Google and Facebook and Twitter and these other digital companies are doing. And I would argue that you know, while I'm sure the research into many of the things or all of the things she's talking about are, are ongoing, some of them are well known, some of them aren't. But the same thing, most people's concern is about, how, you know, getting profiled in a way that's detrimental to their life and they have no control over. So yeah, I mean, I get it. And that's, that's to your point, that buries the creepy line. Maybe, maybe for you, you know, that's a deeper creepy line than somebody collecting data about you and using that in your digital life. For some, for other people, they might be the other way around. So yeah. Right, okay. because because you have no control over the way your voice is, right? And I would think, especially for employees, that would especially be a sore point. Now, maybe, maybe. if that maybe. wasn't enough of a challenge, let's talk about some of the other challenges that employers have with um, understanding their employees. What are some of the top ones? Well, again, they're, they're very, as I was saying, this is all about, you know, applying CX techniques to employees. So exactly the same things, right? So segmenting employees, um, you know, understanding which attributes are important and differentiating between one employee than another. Um, you know, prioritizing employees can be another political minefield, right? I mean, it hurts to say it, but some employees are more important than other employees to a business. Doesn't mean they're more important human beings. It means they're more important to the business. Um, and you know, Th Thomas Edison was more important to the Edison company than most of the people who worked in his company. Some of those people may be important to him. So their skills, their attitudes, I mean, you know, I mean, when people push back on that, my usual reaction is get real. 
Um, and so, but you have to go through and do that work and that work can be problematic. Um, and then once you identify and segment those employees, you know, defining, you know, what the experiences and the journeys are for various segments or personas. And we see the same challenges as with customers. Um, organizations have very uh, baked in views of how potential employees, for instance, find them, where they should go for those employees, how those employees onboard, what they want, and and often, you know, applying CX techniques like research and independent focus groups, you know, teases out stuff that can be very surprising to companies about how that works because they've spent many years kind of developing their own inside out view of employees, especially at a time when the, you know, the, the population is changing so dramatically in terms of their, you know, their demographics and their interests and their attitudes. And then, and then the third one, same as, you know, customer experience is then you have to prioritize, right? And that's the, you know, you can't do everything. There's not enough resources in the company to do everything for everybody. So you have to, you know, focus on the most important experience elements for the most important employees and do those first. And then, you know, then do you do the most important experiences for the second most important employees, or do you do the second most important experience for the most important employees? And so, you know, the same resource prioritization and effort prioritization that marks, marks CX. And then the, and then the fourth one, which kind of brings us back around to that conversation, you know, ignoring the creepy line, psychological profiling, you know, mind meld attitude is, you know, you then have to figure out how to measure, right? And so um, you've got to measure the impact of the improvements you're trying to make in the experiences to those employees so that you can build a continuous improvement, a systematic continuous improvement um, model that just gets better and better at at certainly attracting the best employees and retaining the best employees. And so there's no difference in the EX world than there is in the CX world. It's exactly the same, the same challenge. It just tends to be often more of a political minefield because getting some of the conversations started around employees that people have every day around customers is an incredibly challenging, challenging activity and, and just can be political, you know, kryptonite, I suppose. In many organizations. Yeah. What's a, what's an example of that? Maybe even an exaggerated example just to kind of underscore that. I, I'll give you, I, and I, I'll give you a good example. Um, so, um, and, and, it, and sometimes it comes back, comes down to the perception of the company and, and brand as we would call it in CX. So let's take an example of a company that, from the outside of the company, people would think of as having incredible relationships with their employees, Southwest Airlines, right? If you ask the average person on the street for a company that has great employee relationships and really cares about their employees and treats them well, Southwest Airlines is one of those companies that comes up frequently. So then you would have to ask the question is why it did, did, did it take them nearly nine years from 2011 to 2019 to negotiate a new employment contract with their aircraft mechanics. Four years after the previous one expired through strikes, disruptions, <laughs> we've got great relationships with our employees. So, um, you know, even in that kind of situation, that that relationship could be fraught, fraught with tensions. Another one that we, this may be a little less extreme, but we have some personal um, examples of is um, an organization that we were working with in the insurance industry 
and they're going through something that in the United States, the insurance industry is going through all up. And that is that there is a fundamental um, demographic shift in insurance agents. So I forget the number, the average insurance agent in the United States is like 55, 56 years old. And there's a big gap behind those people in terms of people who've joined that business because there was such a large swath of people in the baby boomers and then Generation X behind them. And so those people are starting to retire out in large numbers. And so they're looking for new insurance agents and they found themselves, you know, staring at 28 to 30 year olds. And the expectations that a 58, 59 year old insurance agent who's been in the business for 30 years has in terms of, you know, technology that's provided to them, how they're treated, the voice they have in the business versus the average 28 year old that they're trying to recruit is just radically different. And so we, we got to run some focus groups, you know, with this, with this front end generation and the new generation to try and understand that. And it really shook, to be honest with you, it shook the company to the core because guess what? Most of the executives were the same age as most of the agents in their late fifties. And so all of a sudden they're facing this brand new employee population who don't value the things the previous one did. And in their case, I'll give you one specific example every year. Um, they have like 9,000 insurance agents in the US and every year they get their top performers together and they take them to uh, the southwest of the United States and they have a big long weekend with lots of golf, <laughs> which I think is great because I play golf. I, and I'm, I, I'm going to guess that that's not the highest thing on the list of the 28-year-olds. Yeah, not, not, only, not only does not playing golf turn out not to be on the list, getting together turned out not to be on the list. Um, and, and what they found going to these people additionally to that is they found and insurance agents have a very particular, you know, personality model. I mean, you have to be social, right? And so what they found is whereas the previous generation of insurance agents would socialize with people in their local town, this new 28 year old socialized on social media. And so the whole, the way that they built their networks, the same story, same thing, building networks of people, socializing, you know, all the things they've traditionally done, but it wasn't based on their zip code anymore. And so, you know, the further they dug into this, this challenge, the more they realized that they had in their case, you know, 50 years of history and how to build their business model was just going to be shaken to the core by this new generation of employees. But if they didn't change and change the way they operated, what they were finding was they were firstly not getting enough applicants. And back to my previous comment about importance is all the best applicants applicants were going to their competitors. Some employees are more important than others. And so um, they've been working diligently for a couple of years on trying to address this. So it's, it's a real you know, example of how employee expectations can shift and how organizations have got no choice but to address those, just like they've got no choice but to address changing customer expectations. This this seems to really gel with what we're seeing um, in the news a lot about how people cannot find, or businesses cannot find people to work for them. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, along those lines, I have a, uh, case study that I found from the Harvard Business Review. It is from June of last year, interestingly enough, just at the height of the pandemic. And it's titled, uh, Run Your Business 
so that you'll never need layoffs. And it's really prophetic because it's summarized this way. It says, an engaged workforce is the best guarantee of survival. (laughs) And um, this is turning out to be very true. So just briefly, I kind of like to go through, they have three case studies on businesses that manage to avoid laying people off and um, just kind of go through one at a time. The first one is a case study that they did with a company that I think a lot of people might have heard of, and that is um, Gravity Systems, uh, or Gravity Payment Systems, I should say, and that's a company out of Seattle. And in 2015, um, the CEO, Dan Price, he made quite a few waves. He did that by promising all his employees a $70,000 minimum salary. And at the time, if people remember, he got a lot of flack for that, right? He um, and, and everybody said he was going to fail and it wasn't going to work out. And so sure enough, when this pandemic hit, um, they lost over 55% of their business because it's a credit card processing business that they have. And so he got all of his employees together and, you know, had discussions and they came up with the concept that they would all take pay cuts with the highest paid employees taking the highest pay cuts. And they all agreed to it, or at least most of them did. Um, But he ended up not laying anyone off. And now they, after, Post-pandemic, they've paid back all of their employees, uh, you know, those cuts that they took, and they're opening a new office in Boise, I think it is, and they're doing very, very well. I mean, I certainly, you know, I certainly agree with, I I do agree that the um, great employee engagement, and I use the word happy employees, but I'm not sure happiness is the right metric, Um, but great employee engagement and 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 employee involvement is is an absolute critical sex factor um i'm not quite sure how you know how how an example like granite necessarily translates to many other business situations i mean i you know i've been where you are back in 1991 in the 1991 recession um i was with a a young startup company in the united states they're actually a well-known global company but they were just launching here and we got nailed by that recession and we did exactly the same thing we went to our people and we brought them all into the office in atlanta where i was and we said look we've got we've got two choices we can either remove 30 percent of the people um or we can trim our payroll by 30 percent and trimming our payroll by 30 percent you know, we said everybody takes a percentage cut, but we did the same thing. I mean, obviously, the, the the money that was taken as a cut was much larger depending on your paycheck, right? But we also asked the leadership, you know, what I would call the so-called leadership, to be leaders. And in addition to everybody taking a percentage pay cut for um, three months, to be revisited, revisited after three months, we also asked the leadership to voluntarily step up and take a deeper cut. And we did. I mean, we ordered it and I, I wasn't leadership at that time. And, and it was a great thing. However, you know, did, did that cultural model last for 10 years? 
No, it was a specific reaction at a specific moment in time that was very powerful given the nature of our um, employee base, which was a high value, high talent, relatively highly paid employee base. So I, I, I'm with them. I mean, I think it's a great case study. I just always, you know, um, I, I always say like anything in life, dig deeper and see how does that apply? You know, if you're, if you're a company with 150 locations and 2000 employees, you know, all the way up and down the employee spectrum, do you go to your, you know, $28,000 frontline workers and tell everybody they just got their paycheck tripled to $70,000? when the wage for that job in their particular location is twenty eight or $30,000. I, I don't know. And I have a sneaking suspicion the CEO of Gra Granite gravity, you know, is not only being gravity, sorry, is not only being rewarded um, by his paycheck in the, in the long term, whatever the short or long term is. So I, I, but I still think it's an admirable story. I don't think it takes away from it, but I think it needs a little bit more digging. Well, well, let's look at a, at a, at the other two and maybe we'll see a pattern so the second one is Adams plus Beasley. They're in Boston and they're a home remodeling company. Similar story, of course, during the pandemic, they got caught, they got hit really, really hard. And the same kind of thing, they got together with their employees and they had a discussion. They asked for ideas. They figured out a long list of priorities of things that they could do while during the dine during the downtime and they got through it and didn't lay anyone off and then the third one is canless which is a restaurant chain in seattle and similar thing of course restaurants got hit really hard during the pandemic they also went to their employees and they had a discussion. They figured out what services that they could offer that would make the most sense during a pandemic. And they also got through the pandemic without layoffs. And I, to me, the, um, the, the connecting factor here is mm -hmm. that communication, trust and communication, because they were transparent. In the case of the company in Boston, they the employees actually were able to see exactly what the company was making, their profit margin and the whole thing. And so because of that transparency and loyalty already that they had built up, they were able to have these conversations and they were able to be able to um, reach an agreement. And maybe that's the key. Maybe that's the key is transparency and communication. I, I think it's an important element. I'm not, I mean, and again, another great story. I, I would, you know, it'll, it'll be an interesting, I'm not taking away from the story, right? But it'll be interesting to come back and revisit those companies five years from now. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I mean I'll, point, I'll point you back to the Southwest story, right? A company mm -hmm. whose brand was based on the relationship it had with its employees. Spent nine years trying to renegotiate its maintenance workers contract because they couldn't come to agreement. So, you know, my question is going to be, I think it's a great thing. I mean, the pandemic was a serious impact, just like the financial recession. And I think companies did things and some did bad things and some did good things. Um, but I think that, you know, and I think small businesses, especially 
um, you know, that level of engagement is both much, some cases much more important, but also easier, right? When everybody in the business knows each other, that's one thing. I mean, you know, your, your, your payment company is like 120 employees, right? Everybody knows each other by name. You know, if you ask that question at PayPal, which has 10,000 employees across 153 countries and da, 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 right? It's probably a different story. So I think it's a great example. I think companies should take that stuff to heart. I think understanding how to engage with employees and give those employees a voice um, is a really critical piece. I'm not quite sure you can make every employee happy. Um, it's like making every customer happy in the CX world. It just won't ever happen. Um, but I think I think the openness and the transparency and the authenticity, um, you know, are critic, critical elements to a to a business managing any any an organization, a person managing any relationship with any other person. So the so like we were saying, there's, uh, you know, they, they, these, the things that these companies have in common are transparency and communication and loyalty that they've built up over time. And maybe that is the key. So I'd like to propose uh, um, a theory here and see what you think about it. Uh, my theory is that this is not an overnight thing. For example, gravity systems didn't just pop up one day in response to the pandemic and, you know, build this bond with, with, the, with his employees. And, and the same is true of Canlis and the um, Beasley uh, come business there in Boston. They didn't just pop up and, and, and just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're reaching out to their employees and asking for help. So they, it was long-term and very um, deliberate and conscientious decisions on their part that led them to the point where they were able to do that. It is long-term. It was um, something that it, they, they're all in it for the long haul and they want to take that journey together with their employees and, and they want their employees to be there for the long haul. And therefore they have a level of communication and trust and transparency that they have built up over time that maybe a lot of other businesses, you know, larger corporations could learn from. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that that's an ideal situation. I don't think anybody would deny it. I just think it's more complicated to implement in practice than any of us would necessarily like. Yeah. Are there any other challenges that we should consider within the employee experience? Yeah, I give you, I give you one because I think it's, it's all-consuming and it applies to CX as well, and that's, and that's um, return on investment and securing the investments in the organization to focus on it because you know i would argue that in the in the ex discipline if we're in if we're in year 10 or 15 of the cx discipline we're in year 2 of the ex discipline so the pivot to applying this to employees is relatively new the number of companies doing it is relatively small and the good news is I think COVID is bringing this front and center for most leadership teams. So maybe that'll accelerate it. So maybe we'll get to year 10 in two years. Um, but I think, you know, getting organizations to think of employees this way and to, you know, adopt these tools and techniques to apply to employees and the employee experience, you know, is a challenge in many organizations, a challenge that's being addressed very quickly. But 
um, you know, to me, that's we hear that loud and clear across the whole experience discipline. And so, as I said, in the EX world is is newer than the CX world, and so there's less, you know, there's less case studies um, where people have followed this methodology and delivered, you know, transformative, transformative outcomes. And many of the case studies are um, are different, right? I mean, you and I have talked before about one of my my favorite companies, which is not one of most people's favorite companies, which is Walmart. And, uh, and Walmart spends a lot of money on EX and their employees are in general very happy with them and very loyal to them. Um, but that isn't the rap that Walmart gets in the bigger outside world. Most people who don't know them well as a company think of them completely differently. And so, um, you know, I, I think it, we're going to see more and more examples of organizations stepping up and making it clear, you know, which ones of them really understand their employees and take care of them. And, you know, and treat them well. And and I think over the next few years, we'll just see more and more examples, which will make this a bigger and bigger deal. And and I'll have to admit, I have a little bit of skepticism about that. Not that I don't believe what you're saying, but but it's true that they have a very different um, public image than what you're describing. And I'm thinking that the proof in the pudding, so to speak, will be that they retain their employees during this time when a lot of retail uh, and service industries are losing them. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. I mean, the great, the great, the other good thing about Walmart is they're so huge and so pervasive that the ability for you to go hunt down in a Walmart employee and go talk to them is very easy. Right. I mean, there are some parts of this country where there is no Walmart, but that's smaller and smaller every day. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's, yeah, you're right. The proof will be in the pudding. So that was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. It's a it's a very interesting discussion, and I think there's a number of points that we could even possibly revisit at some point. I know that uh, coming up, we'll be talking about customer centric culture. One of the next few podcasts, and that might be a good time to kind of pull some of those points back into that conversation. So thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, you can contact us through Twitter, through our website. Um, I'm going to put the uh, links to the book and to the Harvard uh, Business Review case studies that we were discussing in the show notes. And please do contact us if you have any questions or anything that you'd like us to actually maybe discuss on our podcast. If you have uh, a minute or two of, of comments that you'd like to make on any of this, we'd be interested in talking to you and, and getting your opinion on the air if you'd like to. As always, thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next time. And in the meantime, do CX right. And do it right now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.